If you have your Bibles with you, turn them to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. And if you don't, in your bulletin, there's a, a printout of the passage we're going to read. So uh, whatever you have with you today, the Bible, or if you have the printout, uh, take it out and we'll, we'll read it now. Hear God's word starting in verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. The, uh, the book of First Peter is about a church that's very much like our church. Now, I, I realize that's a little hard to get into our heads. Uh, how is it like our church? They, in, in, in that church that Peter was writing to in Asia Minor, were suffering a certain degree of persecution, not the imperial persecution that came later in later years under the Roman uh, emperors, but rather just local and familial persecution. In other words, to be a Christian was very strange. People looked at you differently. They saw you differently. They, they uh, treated you differently. Sometimes it was hard to get a job. Sometimes it was hard to uh, get your family to understand you. Uh, people actually uh, received uh, a certain degree of persecution in that they couldn't find work. Uh, or were, some were actually pushed out or cast out of their families or out of their communities. And uh, uh, you can see that a lot today. You know, if you tell somebody that you're a Christian, they start looking at you strange. Uh, uh, a statistic that uh, I heard recently is that 75% of people that were asked would, would rather have anybody living next door to them except an evangelical Christian. That's the kind of reputation that Christians in America have. They're obnoxious sometimes. They're offensive. Uh, they're, we're, we're known in our culture today for being just another group that carries around cardboard signs griping and complaining about something or other. And unfortunately... Uh, this has brought a certain amount of derision or criticism to the church. Um, but there's also legitimate uh, criticism. Uh, people believe, and in a world, in a secular world like ours, where all religions are the same, it's pluralistic, and every road leads to God, whatever God is, he, she, or it, 
uh, to have the kind of beliefs that Christianity, authentic and historic Christianity requires, really puts you in a kind of a strange place. In the United States of America, we enjoyed for many, many centuries of our past history a privileged place. If you were a Christian, you were very privileged. If you were a Protestant Christian, you were really privileged. Now that's changed, and it's not the case so much anymore, and perhaps good for us. I personally believe it's going to be a good time uh, for the church, the authentic church here in the West. We are living in what Peter calls a hostile world, and persecution was ramping up in that day. And it would come to a place where, I mean, people were getting slaughtered in the gladiatorial arenas and murdered, uh, genocides were going on because of that. So what does God offer you and I? What is He offering so that we can live in this world of, of persecution, so that we can live in, in difficult circumstances, not avoid them, but actually live in the midst of them? What is He offering us? And unfortunately, a lot of people think, well, what he's offering us is just some rules and some uh, distinctives. In other words, you know, here's, here's the things that set us apart. We don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't dance, we don't chew, and we don't go out with girls that do. You remember that? These the silly little ditties that we come up with sort of to distinguish us from everybody else. We dress a certain way, we talk a certain way, and none of that is really what... Maybe some of that would actually be true in your life. Maybe you would stop doing certain things or take on doing other things. But what really is at the core of authentic Christianity is who you are. Down in your, in your, in your spiritual DNA, who you are. Our culture tells us what you do is who you are. Christianity says who you are is what you do. It's completely off, off the charts. And uh, if you get that, it can actually change your life. It can transform and change your life. So what Christianity offers, what Peter is saying to a church that is feeling out of sync with the rest of the world, is God's not just going to give you more rules. I mean, all religions have rules that are pretty much similar. What He's going to give you is new birth. New creation. You can be born from above. What Luke prayed, you can actually have what some have called a second chance. I don't know if that's the best way for us to put it, but it is a second chance. It's a second opportunity to make life better. And we don't make it better for ourselves. He makes it better for us. In verses 1 through 3 of the first chapter, he says this. Peter starts this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. You see, before He ever tells you what to go do, He tells you what God has already done in your life. You've been born again. You're a new person inside. And therefore, when He says, now go out and love your neighbor... Why? How can you possibly love your neighbor? Our neighbors are stink, stink, don't they? No, you all have great neighbors? I do. But I know that some of you have terrible neighbors. What, what do you do? How do you love your neighbor? How do you love your spouse sometimes? How do you love your children when they're crazy? I'm the only one with crazy children. All right. All right. How do you do that? The only way you can really... You can't do it just by coming to church and have the pastor scold you. Love people more, love people more. Okay, now go. Well, good luck with that. 
That's not going to work. There has to be something inside that changes, something that actually rewires you. And this is what Peter is talking about. You have been born again from above to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and fading, kept in heaven for you. So God, before we do anything for Him, He comes and does something for us. It's really amazing. There's no religion like it. And so let's talk this morning very quickly about the place He's calling us to, uh, the people He's calling us to, and thirdly, the cornerstone. So we'll look at those three. This uh, portion that we just read is actually the climax to the introduction. This is the the finishing part of the introduction. From this point forward, in the weeks to come, you're going to hear Peter giving a lot of instruction. Now that you know all this, almost two whole chapters of information about who you are, now here's what you're supposed to do in order to be salt and light in the world around you. And I hope that, and I'll keep coming back to that so you don't get overwhelmed, but he is going to tell us to do some things, and I think you'll be very uh, both encouraged and surprised at the things he tells us to go do. So let's look at the place. Look at what he says in verse 4 in the first part of verse 5. Come to Him, the living stone. Come to Him, the living stone. You know the ancient people, you can go back in world history, every, every culture in the world had what we call sacred spaces. Spaces where they believed the gods or God, or whatever the supernatural powers were out there, that they lived there. And in the ancient Near East, the place where gods lived, whatever they were, whatever you believe them to be, they lived under trees or around trees and on the top of mountains. And the reason for this was because, think about it, where would God be? If, if there was a God, where would He be? He'd be above you, Right? He'd be up there somewhere. He wouldn't be down here where we are. He'd be up there. If He was a God, of course He'd be up there. So how do you get to Him? Well, you go to the mountain. And you go up on the mountain because proximity-wise, you're closer if you're up on a mountain. Why trees? Why did they build shrines and altars around and under trees or on the top of them? Because trees reach down into the earth where the underworld was. Okay, get the picture? underworld, and it stretched up to the heavens where God was. So they saw trees as living conduits between heaven and earth. Ladders, if you will, that reached up into the heavens. And so they would build shrines because they believed if we could get, if we could get by this living, growing thing that has roots down into the underworld and, 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 and arms that reach up into the heavens, we can, ha- we can have a channel and we can reach up to God. So they built shrines. Later on, they built altars. Later on, they had tents and tabernacles and then later temples, buildings. And inside these buildings, that's where the gods lived. Whatever they were, that's where they lived. Sometimes there's one, two, three. Sometimes there was bunches of them. They would all live. And sometimes they had their own house. One god would have a house over here across the street. You know, his sister lived. Literally. Sister lived over there. Boyfriend lived over here. The mistress lived down there. I'm telling you the truth. And this is how they saw the world. And Peter and even the Jewish people, they had a beautiful temple, magnificent, it was known all over the world. They had a temple in Jerusalem that was encrusted with gold inside and out. It's amazing. 
You could see it for miles coming into Jerusalem. It would shine like a brilliant light out there in the middle of the desert. You could see it. And here's Peter, a Jew, who is saying to a group, a mixed group of Jewish people and Gentile people, that you're to come to Jesus, the living stone. And then he says, you yourselves are like living stones built together into a spiritual house. What is he saying, radically saying, to an ancient world that all they could think about was buildings and God's dwelling inside the building. And if you went in the building, you saw God. But when you left the building, hey, you're on your own. He's saying, no, the church is no longer like that. The the place where we worship God is no longer in a building or under a tree or on the top of a mountain or in a certain country or in a certain culture. It's not anywhere like that. It's in Him. It's in a person. Jesus Christ. And that person does not dwell alone. He's not by Himself. He is the foundation or the cornerstone of an entire building, people. You know, we had our dedication last week. I hope many of you were here. It was a beautiful service. And I love our bit. Look at how this beautiful building. The only thing missing is money in the vault in the back. But look at the building. Beautiful. We never dreamed we'd have such a place. But folks, do you realize that when we leave this building, God doesn't stay here and kind of look around lonely like, oh, geez, I guess I'm here. Nice table. And it is a nice table. Chris and Jamie made this table for us. And God's going to pulpit. Oh, I love this pulpit, and I especially love Chuck. He's the best of the whole thing, isn't it? You know. I mean, come on. Does he think he stays here and by himself, all lonely? No, he goes with us wherever you go. Wherever you go, he goes with us. We have been brought to him. He is the place. And not just him by himself, but look at verse 5, the first part of verse 5. You yourselves like living stones built. We are a community of believers. Church, folks, church. Coming to church is falling on hard times in the 21st century. I'm the first one. Churches are empty today. Even in America, except for great big mega churches where they put on an unbelievable production and show they can draw a certain amount of people. But small churches like ours are on hard times. Make no mistake. Literature is being written by the volume about what are we going to do because the church is in decline. And actually it is. The church, the institutional church, is in trouble. But let me tell you, there is more health in in small churches, in good churches, churches where the gospel is being preached, there is true health. And it's not just about how many people are there. It's how truly you believe the gospel and are actually living it out in your daily life. That's where it really matters. Church is not optional. We are a community of believers. And if you try to go off on your own by yourself, you will die. You will be destroyed. We've seen people come and go from this church and sometimes they come, they get mad at me or they get mad at somebody. Uh, Maybe they're mad at you. And they leave. And they go out and say, I'm not going to church anymore. Church disappointed me. Church is not what I really want. Church is this. Church is that. A bunch of complaints. And they go out there on their own. And you know what? Just watch and see. Shipwreck, shipwreck, shipwreck. I know because I did that. For 10 years, Marty V and I left the church 
got very disappointed in the church. It didn't live up to our expectations. It didn't give us everything we wanted. Didn't do exactly what God didn't do exactly what I told him to do. And so I got offended. And we left the church for 10 years. Do you still like me? Yeah, see? Thanks, Paulette. At least one. I mean, 10 years we were gone from the church. Because the church didn't do what we thought it should do and God didn't listen to what I told Him to do. Craziness. The church is not optional. It is a family, folks. Listen to what Dr. Dr. Edmund Clowney says in his commentary. Church is not optional. It is familial. It is a family. It is a spiritual, listen to this, it's incredible, spiritual ethnicity. You know, we're not black, we're not white, we're not Middle Eastern, we're not Mexican-American or Hispanic or Spanish uh, or Greek or South American or Cuban or whatever flavor, Native American, whatever flavor you want to pick. And we have almost everything in our church. We have a common ethnicity because of who we belong to. Our spiritual ethnicity trumps no pun intended, trumps all the other ethnicities so that we can be truly one people, one family. You know the saying, I'm sure you've heard the saying, blood is thicker than water, right? And you've heard the other saying, what is it, uh, you can choose your uh, friends, but you can't choose your relatives. Well, let me tell you, if you just look around, I'm not going to make you do it because it's kind of embarrassing and cheesy to be told to look around in church. Look around, look at your neighbor. No, please don't. Uh, but if you did, if you were to look around, you don't get to choose those people. They are not merely your friends. They are your family. You're stuck with them. Do you know you're actually going to go to heaven with them and be with them forever? I'm not sure if that's really heaven or not. I mean, think about it. Yikes. There are some people that we really don't like and we're going to actually have to see them forever. Okay, so enough of that. Uh, (laughs) What a great thought. Thanks for coming to church today, everybody. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) We are family, and we've got to start thinking of ourselves. That way, when somebody is wounded, somebody's in trouble, you don't abandon them. You can abandon friends. You can kind of walk off from them. But your family, you know, you stick close. You stay, even if you don't like them. We have a spiritual ethnicity, Dr. Clowney says. Then, then St. Cyprian. You know, I, I, I'm sorry to get afield here, but you know, in the ancient church, the greatest mind of the ancient church, of the first thousand years of the ancient church was who? The greatest theologian, greatest mind. Who was it? Who? Augustine. Augustine. See, we do have some people in the class that listen. Okay, Augustine. Who was the second greatest mind in the, in the ancient church? Anybody? Go ahead. This is your chance to show off. See, Peter Mitchell's not here anymore. No, John Calvin came later. First thousand years. Nice try. I mean, John Calvin is like the, uh, the gray squirrel, right? Is he a gray? It's Jesus. Yeah, everything. Everything's John Calvin. St. Cyprian. Cyprian was considered the second greatest mind next to Augustine. Amazing. Listen to what he said about the church in his work the unity of the church, his little thesis. You cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. He's saying you can't. 
You cannot call God your Father if the church, not Christ the King Presbyterian Church, although I could tell you that and many of you would believe me, but that's, I can't get away with it. No, not the church, Jesus, Him, Him, the church, okay? You cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. God is one. Listen to his rationale. He's a brilliant mind, St. Cyprian. God is one. Christ is one. His church is one. One in faith. One is the people. Now listen. Cemented together by harmony into the strong unity of a body. Do you see the imagery that he's using? He's saying, you know, each of you is like a brick. And we are cemented together into a building. And that is how we are to look at ourselves. We are together. How would you like to be in a foxhole with somebody, bombs are coming and ISIS is chasing you and you're in a foxhole and the guy next to you or the gal next to you is wants to kill you? You see, we would, not, we would not know what to do with ourselves. And that's what happens in churches. Churches are notorious for slaying their wounded. Find out somebody has a sin in their life, we don't want to be around them anymore. Right? And I just told you one of mine, that I was away from church for 10 years. Anybody ready to leave? Now don't you do it. Because We take pictures. We have a camera back there. Who leaves early? No, I'm kidding. But you get the idea. See, we can't just kill our wounded. We have to take care of people. Because people mess up. I've messed up and you've messed up. Peter is telling us we are family. We live together. We are unified. We are one. Why? Because we all belong to the living stone. Christ Himself. So we need one another as obsolete as you may think the church is. And now I'm going to quote John Calvin Vick. So listen. It's essential to our growth. It's not optional. It's familial. It's, we're unified. We can't break it apart. Otherwise, the building comes down. But it's also essential to our growth. Listen to what John Calvin says. He's channeling now. He's channeling uh, uh, St. Cyprian. Listen to what he says. I shall start with the church into whose bosom God is pleased to gather His sons that they may be, listen, nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, guided by her motherly care until they mature and reach the goal of faith, so that for those whom He is the Father, the church must also be the mother. See, he's channeling Cyprian. He's saying, you need the church so that you can be guided, instructed, helped, nourished, fed. You know, if you start going to Scott's gym, if you start working out, the first thing he talks, he doesn't even take you out and show you a weight until he tells you how to eat. And you can see how well that's done for me. Actually, it has. I've done good. Think about it, folks. A nourishment. That's why we come to the table. What we're saying, what we're actually saying is, I cannot go a, I cannot go a moment of my life without the bread and the wine, common elements that everybody had in their home in those days, I can't get along without that. I can fast, I can go without regular food, this food I have to have. That's what Peter is telling us. Altars, tabernacles, temples, sacred space has always been central to the life of God's people, always. And it's no different now. Where do you find it? You find it in community, a community that believes in Him, a community that is joined to Him. Okay? That is the place. Now the people. Let's go quick. I'll go quicker here. The people 
are chosen, listen to this, chosen, but not choice. Look at 5b and 9, the whole verse of 9. We are a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you see what Peter does is he takes and goes back into the Old Testament, the rich literary history of the Old Testament, and he picks up over a dozen separate scriptures. I actually went and counted them. Over a dozen scriptures, and he pulls them all together, and he says, here's who you are. This was said of the people of old, the old community of believers, the the Israelite nation, and now it's being said of you, Gentiles and Jews, all together. You are these people. Chosen, royal, holy nation, people of His own possession. This means you belong to Him. You're His. He's yours. Very intimate language. Dr. Clowney, again in his book, listen to this. The wonder is not that God chooses some and not others. Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. The wonder is that God chooses any at all. And then Clowney goes on. He says, God does not choose an elite. Israel is a chosen people, not a choice people. Do you see the difference? A chosen but not choice. You see, he didn't look down on the world and he said, oh my gosh, look look at Chuck. Oh my goodness. What a magnificent specimen of humanity. What an amazing human being. I mean, I look at Chuck from heaven and he just shines and glows. There are stars above his head. He is so great and so wonderful. And when he opens his lips, people melt on the floor like like ice cream. Just melt. I've got to have him. Heaven will not be the same without Chuck in heaven. It just won't be the same. Well, folks, I've told you many times, when he looked down and saw me, you would have crossed the street to get away from me. He came down, got in the mess with me, and brought me up out of the mess. And today, in my mess, and I still have one, he stays with me in the mess. He doesn't draw away, he draws near. Don't you love that? Don't you love you have a God like that? who loves His people, has set His love. No, we're not choice. We're not an elite. But we are chosen. And when that, when that, when that goes down into your heart and you realize, man, I, I was blind. Now I see. I was lost. Now I'm found. I was the least. Now I am somebody. I was, I was a person with no mercy. Now I have mercy. I was a person with no name. Now I have a name. I was a person with no hope. Now I have a living hope. I was a person with no God except myself. Dear, help me. And He came and became my God and took care of me. Do you see what that will do to you if you really believe that? It can change who you are. It can make you able to go through the storms of life, go through the trials, even go through the good times. The good times can be better. He gives us a completely new identity and a new motive. 
The motive is he has called us out of darkness into the light. We were once not a people, now we are God's people. Dr. Dr. Jack Miller, uh, during the Sonship Movement, Dr. Jack Miller said that that idea, that we were in the dark and have been brought out of the light, that we were not a people, but now we are a people, that we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. He said that should, that should raise us to the sky. It should lift us up to where we're soaring in the sky. We can't believe how God would, would condescend that He would come down into the gutter and get somebody like me and like you and pick us up and take us. That, that would cause us to soar into the heights but not make us proud. It would humble us down to the ground. In other words, you really have a right estimation of who you are and what you are. You realize for once, I am loved like unbelievably loved. But look where I came from. And you never forget those two things. Even when we're in heaven, folks, we're not going to forget. You know why? Because we're going to be clothed in white robes. And when you look at Jesus, guess what color His robe is? Have you read your Old Testament? His robe is splattered in red blood. Because He trod the winepress of God's wrath alone. By himself. And all of us will be there in our white robes looking so good. And every time we look at our Savior, we're going to see the nail prints in his hands, the nail prints in his feet, the scars on his head, and the blood stains on his robe. And that will lift you to the sky, knowing that you're loved like that. And it'll keep you humble down to the ground, knowing that God loved us like that. It changes who we are completely. That's the people. The place, the people. Let's talk about the cornerstone very quickly. Peter strings a group of, of, of scriptures together. In fact, I went and looked for them. There, there's a whole string of them in the Old Testament. And he puts them all together. Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah uh, uh, chapter 8. All about the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? The cornerstone, you've heard this a million times, folks. It was the first stone that they laid in the foundation of a building. And the, the, the craftsman would take extra care to make sure that that stone was perfectly square, that it was perfectly lined up. They would do all kinds of surveying so that when they placed that stone, that it was absolutely solid, that it was lined up with the way they wanted it to go, and that it was not going to shift or move. Because every stone, every subsequent stone that was laid had to match that stone, right? Have any of you laid a course of brick? Anybody? You know what it is. If you don't put the first brick down, you put the next one next to it, the next one. Down. By the time you get to the end, if you're off just a quarter uh, of a millimeter, if you're off just a little bit, of, an eighth of an inch, by the time you get down there, you're like two, three inches off. You, your wall's like this, yes? You'll know what I'm talking about. The course, the first course, has to be perfectly laid. The first brick has to be perfectly laid. Otherwise, the entire foundation is faulty. And he's saying that Jesus Christ is the chosen one, the only reason that any of us are chosen, because He is the chosen one. And He is not only chosen, He's precious. Do you know that you're precious in God's eyes? But why? Why are you and I precious in God's eyes? Not because of who we are, but whose we are. We belong to Him. So when God looks at you and me, He says, wow, you know, Chuck was not impressive. He's still not. 
but he's there next to my son, and I really like my son. I love my son, and my son loves Chuck, and I love Chuck, and gave my son for him. You see how it's all interconnected, what we call the web of multiple reciprocity? Everything is connected. And God loves us and gave his son, and his son loves us and gave his life, and the father and the son loved us and gave his spirit so that we would never, never, never be alone in all of our troubles and all of our trials. The God's cornerstone, verse 6a, I'm laying a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Without, you couldn't put a price on him if you wanted to. But what does he say happens to this cornerstone? Look at verses 7, 8, and right around there it says, people did not believe and I'll move quickly and I'll just tell it, go to the end here. He was rejected. He was offensive. They stumbled over him. They would not listen and they would not believe. He took shame and dishonor. And that's why people looked at our Savior, the one who came down to rescue us. So how in the world can we accomplish what he's asking? You remember what I told you at the beginning? Does he just come down and give us a whole bunch of new rules? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go out with girls. You know, all this stuff. We think the Bible's full of rules. There's only a few pages of rules in the Bible. The Bible is mostly about how God came and rescued us so that we could follow whatever rules. And there's not that many. There's only a couple. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. You fulfill the law when you do this. Do you see? There's not that much. But he gave his son. How will we accomplish it? You accomplish it by understanding that he was rejected, that he did receive scorn and shame, that he was offensive, and that his shame, look at what it says in this verse, Whoever believes in Him, listen, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So honor, honor is for you who believe. Do you see what He's saying? All the shame, and and we can accrue a lot of shame in a lifetime, folks. Some of us that are older, I look back on my life sometimes and I go, my God, what, what in the world would I possibly do with all of that? What could I do with it? I don't have enough time to make up for it all. Even if I tried, I couldn't make up for it all. So what do I do? What do you do with your shame? What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your sin? How do you pay? And he says, no. I will come. I will take your offense. I will take your shame. I will take your guilt. I will take your sin so that whoever believes on me can be heaped honor. Honor instead of shame. Let me leave you with this and we'll close. One of my favorite authors, Horatius Bonar, The Everlasting Righteousness. You should read it. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. Listen to what he says. To be entitled to use another's name when my own is worthless. To be allowed to wear another's raiment because my own is torn and filthy. 
to appear before God in another's person, the person of His beloved Son. This is the summit of all blessing. The sin-bearer and I exchange names and robes and persons. Jesus takes our dishonor, our sin, our shame, our guilt. He takes it on Himself on the cross. And in exchange, when He rises from the dead, He comes out clothed in glory and He takes off His robe and He slips it on to you and I. And covers us with His own righteousness, with His own blood. That is what the Gospel tells us. And what Peter is telling His people to believe. This will hold you, even in a world that's filled with persecution. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank You uh, for this day and for these uh, beautiful days that You've been giving us here in El Paso. It's uh, exquisite to live here in a place that the weather is so beautiful and where we can look up into the heavens and see the glory of Your handiwork. But nowhere, nowhere, can we see that beauty and that glory more perfectly displayed than on the brow of our Savior, in His hands, in His feet, in His pierced side, in His shame, not His own but ours, that He took for us. Father, how can we thank You for such beauty? How can we possibly repay You? We know that we can't, but... I pray that many of us today will give our lives to you completely anew and afresh. Once again, each week we have to commit ourselves to you and we do so now. Please help us. Save us. Have mercy on us and keep us, O God, by your grace, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.